Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus? I call it a book, but technically uh, the book of Titus is a letter. It's uh, an epistle, as we say, a letter. It was written in the early 60s by the historic Apostle Paul to a key church leader named Titus, who had his work cut out for him, planting churches and raising up church leaders, specifically pastors and deacons or elders and deacons, to lead in these congregations. They're planting churches, they're making disciples. That is the mission that Christ has given to his church. Plant churches, make disciples, reach the unreached. Uh, Titus, to whom the letter is named after, the recipient, was uh, not only a church leader, but in the first century context of, you know, ethnic tensions and what have you, it's interesting to note that he belongs to the ethnic group of the Gentiles, whereas uh, Paul, of course, is, uh, is a Jewish man. Uh, the Jews and the Gentiles don't get along, but as the message of the gospel was penetrating the Roman Empire, it was bringing people who previously did not get along to be along, and more than just getting along in terms of toleration, they're becoming family, and they love each other. They call each other brothers and, and sisters, and so Titus is a brother to Paul, though he is a Gentile. He is, uh, uh, in addition to being a brother, he's a co-partner with Paul. He is trained by Paul, and Paul has sent him out in positions of leadership. Titus, in some instances, even operates as an apostolic designate, so he, he stands for uh, Paul as an apostle having a special authority in the early church. He's a, he is locally a pastor who ministers the Word of God to the saints, Paul took Titus with him to Jerusalem. We read about it in Galatians 2. Uh, they, they carried out various assignments that you can read about in other epistles. And, and so he's, he's very well trained, Titus is, personally at the hands of the Apostle Paul. At the time of this letter, however, the hands of the Apostle Paul are far from Titus. You see, Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete where he was training up church leaders, planting churches, raising up pastors, making disciples, trying to reach the unreached, go to the ends of the earth. And, and now Titus is, is on his own. And now Titus is, is facing hardships. Uh, Paul has gone off uh, with Timothy to Ephesus, to Macedonia, and so Titus is on his own. He's been trained, so he's ready for the task. And if you've ever been trained for a task at at, at work or whatever, and then, you know, you, you follow someone, they show you how to do it, and then you're left on your own to do it. That can be intimidating, and particularly when you're facing hardship. So this letter is written as a, a kind of a personal encouragement to Titus from Paul, these brothers, these partners in the gospel. In addition to being a personal encouragement, it is loaded with reminders of big ideas for, for life and for Christian faith and for practice and for worship. There's a great emphasis on duty, that is, obeying uh, what we know to be the good and the true and the beautiful. So there's an emphasis on duty, and there's also an emphasis on doctrine. Uh, Paul is concerned about belief and behavior. With regard to belief and, and, and doctrine, uh, Paul is going to remind Titus of some key things about Christ and about salvation. That said, for the month of December, I have been preaching a sermon series that is very doctrinal reminding us of some key things about Christ and salvation. This sermon series for December I entitled Christmas Christology. And in this sermon series, we have been taking a systematic theological sermonic exploration of God the Son. And the goal of this series is to take our church deep into the theology of Christmas, which we celebrate in December, in order to deepen our worship of God and appreciation for the coming of the Son of God in flesh, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, which we celebrate at Christmas, or Advent. Uh, we call it Advent from the Latin term Adventus, which means coming. We celebrate the coming of the Christ 
child. And in celebrating that coming, it was on my heart as a pastor in the church to make sure that we understand, you know, the background and the story and the theology and the riches of this so that we don't just go through the motions of the holiday, but we really dig deep into God the Son. Uh, continuing with this, this will be the last installment of it, part five in this series. I'm titling the last message, the message I'm giving today, Growing Pains in Parousia. Uh, depending on your age and your consumption of media, you might remember uh, Growing Pains, that TV show. Uh, you, you know, it was kind of popular in the, was it, late 80s or early 90s. Uh, true, true story, fun fact, I was on the show a couple of times. I got cast as an extra, me and a couple of my buddies, and we got to ditch school, and they paid us and fed us, and we got to hang out with stars. It was a really trippy uh, era of my life. And eventually I stopped doing it mainly because it was a timepiece. So it was situated before my generation. So the, the cast of the crew would really get on you if you cut your hair too, too modern or whatever. And I was too cool for that. So I was like, whatever, I'm done. I don't, I don't care about this Hollywood stuff anyway. I want to have a cool fade with lines in my eyebrows and stuff because that was cool. So anyway, uh, side bit. You remember Growing Pains. The premise is... Uh, you know, moving from childhood into maturity. So the, the characters in it are in that transition where they're figuring out relationships and life and crushes and responsibilities and stuff like this. And in today's message, I, I want to explore the growing pains of Christ, the wonder years of Christ as we move from the manger into his ministry and even beyond into the parousia, which is a part of the title, Pains and Parousia. What is parousia? Parousia is a Greek noun, which is the cognate of a verb, peremi, that literally means something like, if I were to translate it into English, to be present or to arrive or to come, kind of like the Latin word eventus. Ancient Christians used the term parousia to speak specifically about the return of Jesus, or what we call today the second coming. In the first century world of the New Testament, parousia was often used to refer to the coming of a ruler to a city. So when an important ruler, a king, would come to a city, uh, they would have a ceremony. All the citizens would empty out of the city as the king came, and they would greet the king in his parousia outside the city. They would have ceremonies of paying a title and tribute and honor to the king, festivities outside of the city, and then that would begin a grand procession, the parousia, as the citizens of the city would come with the king and then back into the city. Okay, so that's first century context, Greco-Roman appreciation for what that word meant and then how that word gets picked up in the New Testament. Along with this first century Greco-Roman imagery, the word parousia is also associated in the, in the Hebrew Bible with the eschatological concept of the day of the Lord, which is tied to prophecies about a future Messiah who comes to the earth and, and brings his kingdom. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses this Jewish concept and Greco-Roman imagery when he talks about uh, Christ coming, gathering his church, and then coming in procession with his church. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, Paul writes about the revelation of Jesus. When we are who are alive and remain, we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds, and so we will be with the Lord. This parousia of the king comes and, and the city, his citizens, his church empties out and goes to be with him to celebrate, to have festivities, to give tribute, and to give honor. And then from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, moving into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes using the Hebrew concept of parousia, the day of the Lord, where judgment is poured out upon the earth. 
Immediately following this day, the Bible explains Jesus moving from the clouds with his saints to the earth to set up his kingdom, which we read in our our public reading in the New Testament at the beginning of service today. This is all parousia. It will be glorious. The, The Christ child, all grown up, lived his life. He dies on the cross. He rises up from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And one day our great king will come and there will be parousia. We will be caught up with him to meet him. And, and sometime thereafter, he leads us in procession back into the city of God. Now to Titus chapter 2, we see Paul talking about parousia. He speaks of a glorious coming. Draw your eyes at Titus chapter 2. Find your way to verse 11. He begins in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, jealous, zealous, excuse me, for good deeds. So though Titus is facing hardship... Though Paul and Timothy have taken off, Paul reminds him everything is going to be all right. Parousia is our hope, the great and glorious appearance of of Christ when he returns, Christmas future. And that hope is rooted in the historical reality of Christmas past, rooted in the historical reality of the person of God the Son in Christ. It's it's rooted in his theological identity as, as God. Note that the Christ is God and Savior in the text. We would have no Savior without Christmas. So Paul is appealing to Christology as he writes to comfort, to encourage, and to instruct Titus and the church, which brings me to the first point on your outline. Christmas past, the biblical data. A, Christology. Christology is simply Christu Logos, the study of Christ. Ology, the study of. We think of biology, bios, life. Biology, the study of life, or, or you know, other, other geology, uh, geos, the study of the earth, right, and what have you. Christology is the study of the Christ. Our study has had uh, two basic presuppositions with it. I'm beginning today's sermon with review. For those of you who have been here every Sunday, it might sound a little redundant, but keep in mind that redundancy is one of the best ways that humans learn. Why? Because one, we're stubborn, and two, we're forgetful. So saying the same thing over and over and over has a powerful uh, effect, and it's one of the ways that we really learn things. So presuppositions. This series has involved two major convictions. One, that the Bible is an original source material that we can trust for proper research and scientific investigation. Secondly, the historical doctrine of the Trinity is our biblical paradigm for Christological inquiry. In Christmas, we celebrate God becoming a man. However, as Christians, we want to say something more specific than just God becoming a man. We believe God the Son specifically became a man, which requires the doctrine of the triunity of God. What does this doctrine entail? I'm glad you asked. Here's the orthodox definition we've been offering in this series. There's one God who eternally exists in three co-equal and different persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of whom are fully God, all of whom are equal. They exist eternally in this amazing love relationship. The Son loves His Father. The Father loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Son. The Spirit loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. There's this eternal bond of love. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that God is love, which requires there to be more than one person because in order to have love, you have to have more than one person. And in God, we have 
three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The celebration of Christmas requires this understanding of the triunity of God, which is why it is necessary, if we're going to talk about Christmas Christology, to have that as a foundation, to understand, you know, who is God the Son and His relationship with the Father. When we study the Christmas story, we see divine agency through and through the Christmas story. Uh, we, we see miracles and, and angels, and we see in the Christmas story the movement of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, this has, uh, it, to readers of the Bible, isn't new. You see the movement of the Father and the Son and the Spirit throughout the storyline of the Bible. In fact, the Bible opens with the triune God. When you're in the book of Genesis, in the first chapter, you see in the beginning God creates. And then you see, just in a couple of verses there, you see the Spirit hovering over the waters of creation. You have the presence of the Spirit. You have a God the Father creating. You have this repetition of the Word. God creates by the power of His Word, which the Gospel of John picks up and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and John goes on to explain how the Word became flesh and incarnated. You have the Son, you have the Father, you have the Spirit you have God in the very beginning of the creation account saying, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image. He creates the earth. He creates humanity. He makes humanity in his image. He loves humanity. You see it loud and clear in the creation. He places man in paradise. He gives man law. He tells him what to do and what not to do. As any loving creator would, you don't just leave your kids to figure it out. You, you give them law. Like, hey, don't do this, do this, right? And, and, and he tells them, he cautions them that, like, if you do this, specifically the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if, if you violate this law, here's what's going to happen. Death is going to come to the creation. The one who gives harmony to the creation, the one who gives life to the creation, when he's rebelled against, harmony turns into disharmony, life turns into death. As a result of this, 10 out of 10 people die. Why is that? Because 10 out of 10 people sin. We're a part of this rebellion. This is how the Bible opens, with creation, with love, with humans making a mess of things, unrequited love, rejecting God. But God, in the beginning of the creation account, has a plan. It involves the seed of a woman who's going to overturn the kingdom of darkness. And you follow that seed promise through the Bible, and it goes to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to the great King David, whose, whose seed is going to sit on a throne and usher in the kingdom of God to the people of Israel, to the nations of the earth, bringing peace and restoring the earth and a new heavens and a new earth and last days when God pours out His Spirit on all of humanity. And you read this storyline and you see how loving God is in the face of our violation of His law. And you read that storyline and you see Father, Son, and Spirit working together in the one God. And we come to the creation story where the fulfillment of the seed of Mary and the seed of Abraham and the seed of David is now in the flesh. We see the initiation of the Christmas plan of the Father coming to fruition as the Son is conceived. In his, in his conceiving, we see His condensation into this fallen world. We read of His execution in relation to the plan. And we see the Holy Spirit actualizing the plan through the virgin conception. Throughout the biblical witness of Christmas, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the one divine will of the triune God to give us this holiday that, we're, that we've celebrated this month. Or rather, not just a holiday, but to give us the Holy One, who we're called not just to know about, but to, in fact, worship. Because it is through Him that we come into relationship with God. It, it is through Him that we have this ability, you see, because where humanity violated the law of God, 
This seed of the woman who has come has no violation of the law. He subjected himself, he condescended himself to come under the law, which he perfectly obeyed. And as a result, he can give his perfect account to our account, and he can die in our place, and he can give us what we do not deserve, forgiveness. You know, forgiveness isn't deserved. People who think forgiveness are deserved are typically narcissists. They have some screws loose. You know, they demand that you forgive them when they are the ones in the wrong. Forgiveness isn't isn't something that necessarily one one just gives. That is the prerogative of the offended party. And in this case, the offended party is God. And thanks be to God that in this case, He is a merciful and gracious God. Look Look at the text. What did it tell us about His grace? Verse 11. Look at it, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's Christmas. The giving of grace in the Christ child has appeared. And what does he do? He brings salvation to all men. Paul speaks of grace. He uses the Greek word charis, which speaks of an unmerited gift that places us in a reciprocal relationship with God having received this gift and he breathes life into us and, and forgiveness and and oh, oh, so much more. In this gift, he saves sinners, and oh, so much more. Paul speaks of this saving, salvation coming to all men. Uh, in talking about salvation coming to all men, Paul, in context here, has all types of people. God saves people from both genders. You know, the, the two ones, the, the two genders. He saves both genders. He saves all ages. Uh, there's lots of ages, uh, unlike genders. Uh, all ethnicities, all social classes, all what, whatever grouping that humans come up with, designations in our, our various social taxonomies, he saves from all. Poor and rich, male and female, young and old. In the context of Titus, Paul writes of different ethnicities. Heck, as I already noted, the letter is being written from a Jewish man to a Gentile. He saves all, Jews and Gentiles. He saves older men, Titus 2.2. He saves older women, Titus 2.3. He saves young women, Titus 2.4. He saves husbands, Titus 2.4 and 5. He saves children, Titus 2.4. He saves younger men, Titus 2.6. He he saves those who are in debt bondage, Titus 2.9. He saves those who are collecting on said debts in Titus 2.9. All people, he saves all people, and all need a Savior. That said, not all will be saved. Titus 2.14, Paul speaks of Christ's particular redemption, and I quote, who gave himself for us to redeem us for his what? Own possession. Christ has come to save a specific people for himself. That said, to save us from what? Well, the penalty of sin and death. Like I said, 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin, and so death is the punishment from that. I don't know about you, but I want to be saved from that, Right? Now, beyond death, there is existence. To be absent from the body doesn't mean that you cease to exist. When your biological functions cease, you can still exist. Uh, and, and the science on this is uh, quite compelling. There is existence beyond the body. That said, we do not escape the justice of God simply in biological death. So Hitler uh, you know, commits suicide. I'm going to kill millions of people, right? And then just snuff myself out. Guess what, buddy? You didn't escape justice. Because there is existence beyond your biological functions. You will exist beyond the grave. There is an afterlife. And in the afterlife, there will be consequence for your sins. And all will be judged by the righteous standard of God's law. And anyone who has violated God's law in any matter of the law will incur the debt of the law. This is fundamental to understanding the law. 
The, the law is present to violate, uh, to, to, to punish those who violate it. Uh, you, in other words, you, you, you don't get rewarded for obeying the law. Uh, the police will never pull you over and, and compliment you on how you've been driving the speed limit and give you a get-out-of-jail card or give you a 24-hour pass to just drive like, like a crazy man or something like that. Right? I use this illustration often in church that I can't kill someone and stand before the judge and say, Your Honor, think about all the people I haven't killed. My goodness outweighs my badness. And yet many people in our culture think, Well, but I'm a good person. You say, That's fine. I'm not doubting that you're a, you know, a good person. In particular, by human standards, I think you're a good person or whatever, but by God's divine standard of his law, you've broken it. And I'm not saying that to be mean, because I've broken it too. We've all broken it. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, so, so to be saved from what? To be saved from that punishment in, in death and in the afterlife. Another question that we often don't pause to consider, we talk about being saved from hell, but we also don't talk about who we're be, being saved from. There's the what, and then there's the who. Who are we being saved from? We're being saved from God himself, the judge, who is just and who will punish us for the wrong that we have done, and that is fair. This who question is important, and, and even who are we being saved from God, but who is God is the next question, because we're not just talking about a generic God. We're not talking about a figment of our own imagination God. We're talking about the true and living God. There's a God who is, and there's a God that humans create, and the two are not the same. This is the true and living God, this triune God that we've been exploring. And in this triune God, a member of this Godhead, God the Son, became a man, and Paul describes that as grace appearing to us in the incarnation. And so we want to understand the incarnation, and in this series I've been giving you essentials to Christmas Christology. Look back at the text where we left off. I, I, I stopped in verse 14, where Paul is moving between doctrine and duty, saying you've got to have good deeds, right? And you've got to understand this doctrine. Paul is concerned with their doctrine. He's concerned that people understand this. We left off at verse 15. He says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, so Paul's heralding Christology to the people, and it and, and, uh, you know, and, and to Titus, and then he's charging Titus to continue this on. You speak this, you exhort this. For those who contradict it, you reprove them. These are non-negotiables for us, hence the term essentials. Recall what I said in terms of Paul leaving Titus in Crete. What was the purpose for him leaving Titus in Crete? Planting churches, raising up leaders. Uh, th that said, turn, turn from this chapter, the second chapter, to chapter 1 in Titus. He begins the letter ta talking about raising up leaders. Look at verse 5, Titus 1.5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, that's pastors, in every city as I directed you. And then he goes on to spell out what a leader should look like. Skip down to verse 9. He notes, he's listing out some duties, and he also lists out doctrine here. In verse 9, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So we see in 2.15 and 1.9 that Paul is really concerned that the church has essentials, understands those essentials, and are faithful to those essentials. Let me draw your attention to some specific essentials that we've been exploring. 
And again, this is redundant, but redundancy is a good teacher, learning something over and over and over. We're just trying to build in that muscle memory. Any athlete knows this, any boxer knows this, any fighter knows this. You do the same drill over and over and over until, until it gets ingrained in you that you don't even have to think about it. It just comes out over and over. If you're learning a new language, you over and over, you go through your vocabulary, and then, and then you move into that sweet spot where you don't have to think about it. It just flows. And so, too, I, I hope that these will flow in our understanding of Christ and our worship of Him. Number one, Christ is fully and completely God. We saw this loud and clear in Titus. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 13. Notice how Paul describes Jesus to Titus. He describes Him in verse 13 as the great God and Savior. I mean, nothing could be clearer from the text. For cults who try to take the Bible and use it to their own sordid gain and deny the deity of Christ, it's just loud and clear in 2.13. He is both God and Savior. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that Jesus created the universe of the visible and invisible. We see this throughout the Scriptures. We see Jesus' general providence over the universe that is ascribed to Him. He's sovereign and sustainer. We see Him forgiving sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We see Him giving everlasting life to people. These are the, the things and the properties of none other than God. It's clear in the text that Christ is God. In addition to being fully God, we see number two on your outline that Christ is fully and completely human. Why does he need to be fully and completely human? Well, he needs to be of the Davidic line and the Abrahamic line, particularly for David to make the claim to the throne. As we talked about the storyline of the Bible and the promise of the seed, he has to come in that seed. The Bible declares Christ's physical body as you're reading the text. Uh, Christmas, we read accounts of him having a human birth. Elsewhere in the epistles, we see this informed. We see this reported in the epistles, this human birth. We read that he has human form of flesh and blood. We see that he is subject to true physical growth. We see him having empirical encounters. People hear him, see him, and handle him. In Christmas, the eternal son took on full humanity. The eternal son who dwelled with the Father and the Spirit forever and ever in this bond of love has entered into humanity as now is being held by sinful and broken humans in a poor neighborhood, in a messed up system, in an occupied land. He's, he's there. He takes on a body. You can hold that body. You can touch that body, see that body, hear his voice. His disciples knew his voice. They could hear him in a crowd and know that that's him over there. In addition to hearing and, and, and touching and seeing, the Bible also describes the immaterial aspects of humanity. I described a moment ago that there is, uh, there is beyond death life. The cessation of biological functions doesn't stop you from being you. You survive beyond your death in the afterlife. And that is because who you are fundamentally isn't just your body, it's your soul. And your soul can live apart from your body. So in Christ, we see he has a full immaterial humanity in him. In Christmas... Uh, God the Son didn't just take on a human body, a, a little skin suit, throw on some human clothes or whatever. He takes on a full human uh, a reality of both the physical and the immaterial. We read in the text of Scripture that he has a soul. You see this in texts uh, in the New Testament that are very clear. Jesus talks about his soul, for example, in Matthew 26, 38. Jesus understands there's a difference between the body and the soul, as he notes in Matthew 10, 28. So the Bible teaches the existence of an immaterial reality known as the soul. Interchangeably with the soul, we have inside of Scripture the mention of the Spirit. 
We see in texts in the New Testament that Jesus uses his spirit. For example, Mark 2.8, he uses his spirit in reasoning with people. We see when he dies, he yields up his, his spirit. Receive my spirit, he cries out as he dies. Into your hands I commit my spirit, he cries out as he, as he dies. So, so Jesus has a full human body. And he also has what is true of our immaterial reality, a soul spirit. Uh, it's worth noting that some Christians think the soul and the spirit are different, what's known as trichotomy. Uh, other Christians throughout the history of the church have held to what's known as dichotomy, that the soul and the spirit are just interchangeable, that there's a, a dichotomy, an immaterial aspect to us, and then a material aspect to us. We exist beyond death in the immaterial aspect, the soul, the spirit. Uh, in addition to that, we can speak of our heart and our mind and our emotions and other things that have existence beyond our physical bodies. Uh, thinking of just emotions, you have emotions that come with regard to your physical body. So say someone hits you in the shin and you, you feel pain, right? But the pain that you feel when you get hit in the shins is a different sort of pain than when someone you love breaks your heart, right? That emotional pain. A pain that resides not in your shin or in your brain or your seed fibers firing. A pain that is deep within your soul and your spirit. It's intuitively obvious that we're more than biological machines. We are soul spirit as well. And Christ takes that on when he takes on humanity. Thirdly, the divine and human natures of Jesus are distinct and completely united in one person. This we explored in the third uh, uh, sermon of this series. So if you missed those, you can go online and check out Sermon 3, where we explore the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Jesus, which affirms that Jesus is fully and completely God in one person. Um, we speak of the hypostasis, or the hypostatic union, to emphasize the distinct identity of these two natures, two what's, one human what, one divine what, in the one who, the union, in the one who of the Son. Uh, this hypostatic union is also described in the history of the church as the unio personalis. I want to quote to you from theologian Richard Mueller as he unpacks this. I was personally blessed to study under him in grad school, so if this small uh, technical quote here, you're like, oh my gosh, that was over my head, just sit in his class for semesters. He would torture us, but I'm thankful for it. Learned a lot from it, trying to pass it on to you. Here we go. Unio personalis, personal union. The union of the two natures in the person of Christ. The unio is defined as the assumption of the human nature by the pre-existent eternal person of the Son of God, in such a way as to draw the human nature into the oneness of the divine person, without division or separation of natures, but also without change or confusion of natures, yet also in such a way that the attributes of both natures belong to the divine human person and contribute conjointly to the work of salvation. Thus, Christ is una persona, one person of two substances or natures. The hypostatic or personal union is maintained in the orthodox doctrine through the recognition of that persona. Is not the sum of two natures, but rather is the divine person of the Son. Okay, maybe that's technical. Let's just put it like this. Jesus of Nazareth is one who? The eternal Son. Jesus of Nazareth is simply a human name that is given to that person who already existed and always existed, the Son. Jesus of Nazareth was and is one person who is both God and man. He is the Anthropos, Theos, God, Anthropos, man, in his person. Jesus is God, as we discussed in this sermon series, because he is homoousia, meaning of the same nature with God the Father and God the Spirit. 
And because of Christmas, Jesus is also the same nature as us. The homoousia became homo sapien, one person in two natures, both God and man. The human nature comes to us in Christmas through the womb of the virgin, which brings us to the fourth essential point, the virgin conception of Christ. As we study last week, she is called in the history of the church Theotokos, which is a term that literally could be rendered um, uh, God childbirth, uh, Theos God, Takos meaning childbirth. Some render this into English as the mother of God, which is first, first glance, it sounds really weird. Hey, no, God doesn't have a mother. God was eternal. What are, what are you talking about here? Now, upon second glance, you actually see that it is not weird because the phrase Theotokos is specifically in the history of the church ascribed to the humanity. So in 451, for example, the Chalcedonian Creed describes Mary as Theotokos according to his humanity. She mothered his humanity, not his deity, but because he is the one person, he is God, in a sense you can say Theotokos. Historically, this guarded against Nestorianism, which we surveyed in a series, those who deny the unity of Christ's two natures in one person. So the Creed says, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to his manhood. Uh, that, that phrase, according to, is key. This guards against Nestorianism, as noted, and it regards against, it also protects against Mariolatry and heathenism and paganism creeping into the faith. Mary is the mother of God only in the sense that the baby inside of her is more than a mere man. That baby is God the Son. Since Jesus is God and Mary is, is his mother, it's fine in that sense to say Theotokos, but only in that sense of the Incarnation. Uh, in the history of the church, uh, folks tried to come up with other ways of talking about the virgin uh, conception and Mary specifically. She is called, moving down on your outline, Theodoxos. Theodoxos. Uh, at first glance, this might sound a little bit better, God receiving. You know, that, that sounds better than the mother of God or whatever at first glance. But at second glance, it actually raises some concerns in church history. So, for example, Cyril of Alexandria in the 400s notes in his letter 10, uh, he uses Theodokos, the receptacle of God or God receiving, and he starts to reason in it like, yeah, but this can lead into other problems because God receiving isn't really saying anything specific about who Jesus is, namely that he's, he is God. In fact, in, in church uh, history and in scripture, we're all God receiving in a sense uh, that, that we are in Christ and that he is in us, right? In fact, in church history, Simeon, if you recall in the Christmas account, the devout Jewish man who received the revelation from the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Christ child, in church tradition, he is also called Theodakos. He is a God receiver. So God receiver isn't saying anything specific. So in the history of the church, uh, people favored Theotakos over Theodakos. Others proposed, why don't we just talk about Anthropotakos, okay? The one who gives birth to a man. Uh, but this was also, it's like, yeah, but the man who she gives birth to is also God. So we want to say more than just saying uh, Anthropotakos because the one who she's given birth to, yes, he's a man, but he's also God. Uh, so in the history of the church uh, uh, came a, a solution for those who on first glance are like, this Theotokos thing sounds a bit much. Theotokos doesn't do it all. Anthropotokos doesn't. How about this? Christotokos. Uh, sounds like a new flavor of some chips or something. You try those Christotokos? They're great. Um, Christotokos means the bearer of the Christ, okay? So in a sense, Theotokos is getting at something that's important because we want to say that baby is God. But we don't, also don't want to elevate Mary in some weird way and have people mishear us like there's some mother goddess or something like this. So Christotokos is a term that can really, uh, you know, get, get at it. She gives birth to the Christ. 
Now, in talking about terms and history and people, uh, there's a tendency, in particular in churches today, uh, where people just get bored with these things. Uh, information overload, whatever, just give me some funny stories. I like that, that little funny thing about the chips or whatever, you know. Do more of that and less of the technical, and you sort of check out, and then you check back in or whatever. Uh, but we want to resist this. We really want to be a church that puts our thinking caps on and, and we think and we press into, because if you're, where else are we going to learn these things? Where else are you going to get to dig deep into Christology? You say, well, that's for people who go off to seminary or grad school or whatever. No, 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 this, this is for the people. Inevitably, in the history of this nation and other nations, when you leave things to the ivory tower and you take it away from the common people, inevitably it leads to creep. The, the ivory tower eventually starts to change and do crazy stuff and go off into other things, and the average people lose a connection to the text. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about in the 1500s, where people didn't even have Bibles that they could read in their own language, and the ivory tower had it under lock and key. No, we want to be a church that actually equips people to do this. A conventional wisdom would say, you can't do that in a sermon. People don't want to hear all this technical stuff. I beg to differ. We need history. We need terms. This is why we have confusion in our culture. This is why we're confused about gender, marriage, freedom. I could go on because those are terms that have lost their original meaning. Paul cared about terms. Draw your eyes back at the text of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 13. This testimony is true. A testimony requires propositions and terms. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. To be sound in faith requires terms. Paul is writing in terms. He's teaching the people doctrine, and he's calling them to duty. Titus 2.1, But as for you, speak the things which are what? Fitting for sound doctrine. And so he wants them to focus on terms, but he, he's also careful to say, look at the third chapter in the ninth verse, he also doesn't want them to turn into eggheads or get into terms that don't matter. So in Titus 3.9, he says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strifes, disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and, and worthless. Reject the factitious man after a first and second warning. Don't, don't get caught off on this other stuff, but focus on the main thing. The main thing is the main thing, major on the majors. In order to reject, uh, in order to the, reject the unsound and to be sound, we need to know our stuff. We need to know our terms. Uh, point two on your outline, the post-Christmas biblical data. Turn in your Bibles from Titus over to the Gospel of Luke and find your way to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. This is where we get into the wonder years of Jesus. The time of transition from the baby to the boy, you know, boys to men, ABC, BBD, the East Coast family. Here we go. So information about Jesus' childhood is relatively scarce in the New Testament. The Gospels are written to focus primarily on his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. After all, this is what he came for. And, but, but these wonder years are also important. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have some data about the wonder years. We have the visit, the visit of the Magi. Uh, it's commonly said the Magi. These wise men, these foreign kings, they come. We read about that. This happens in Jesus' early childhood. And here in the Gospel of Luke, there are some, there's some content here about an incident of Jesus when he was 12 years old. 12, Isaiah, you're going to be 12 this year. That's crazy. Okay, so this is like little Zayzay here in the front row. It's about to be 12. Give it up for Zayzay. If Zayzay can sit through this, you can sit through this. Okay, so the temple in Jerusalem, 12-year-old Jesus, during his visit, 
Uh, he engages with the scholars in the temple, demonstrating he's more than a man. It's kind of cool. And so let's, let's read the account. Luke chapter 2. Draw your eyes at, let's see, verse 41. Now his parents, we read, verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and they were returning after spending a full number of days. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And they went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and they did not find him until they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Uh, it's, a, it's a shalash relogim, a, a, a festival where you go to the city of Jerusalem. It's like Thanksgiving where everyone comes to town. And so it's crowded. It would be easy to lose a little guy in, in a crowd like that. Can you imagine losing Jesus? Imagine <laughs> what that's like for Joseph and Mary. Of, of, you know, true story. I've lost kids before. Uh, the, the scariest one was we were in London at the London Museum, lots of crowds. My little guy, Obi, he's like five years old. He's super small, super cute. I thought my wife was watching him. I guess she thought I was watching him. We had an extended crowd of friends and whatever. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm in full, like, you know, showing people the artifacts because it's the British Museum. They got all this cool stuff from the Bible. And I'm leading our group. And next thing I know, where's Obi? And you look around, Obi's not with us. And then all of a sudden, you're just filled with fear. Like, where's Obi? And we just start yelling like Americans. And all these British people, we were quite the spectacle. And we couldn't find him for, for a few minutes. It was just a few minutes. Let alone, in this case, it's for days. I can't imagine the panic of this. And we found the little kid. He was sitting under a, he was sitting under a bench with a tablet, just, just playing his little game, happy as can be. And we were scared to death, you know. And then I got chided by one of the British security guards who gave me a full lecture about not losing your kids. And I was like, yes, thank you. All right, uh, moving on then. It's a scary thing. But that's Obi. We're talking about the son of God here. <laughs> can you imagine that argument between Joseph and Mary? I thought you were watching him. I thought you were watching him, you know. It's like, we are in so much trouble with God the Father. We've lost his son, you know. Imagine the stress of this. Verse 46, then three days after they found him in the temple, right? Three days this goes on. Imagine three days. Three days. This makes me think of Jesus in the tomb, dead for three days. And his male disciples, who had in a sense missed him. And just as Mary and Joseph... Uh, we also see in Jesus' death, the female disciples are at the tomb and they don't know where to find him. And through it all, as, as in the case of his death and they don't know where to find him, through it all, he was in full control. <laughs> Today you will be with me in paradise. You don't know where to find him, but he's in full control. He's in paradise with his father and soon to return to the earth in resurrection glory. They found him in the temple, verse 46, sitting in the midst of the teachers, the rabbis, and listening to them and asking them questions. And all, verse 47, who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The boy Jesus is schooling the professors of the day. So he knew his terms. He could throw down on some theotakos, theodoxos, christotakos, you know. Uh, that sounded like christotakos. Yeah, he, can, he knows his terms. He knows his theology. He knows his scripture. He's in full control. There's no panic. He's not playing on a tablet, chilling. He's intentionally engaging the institution. 
Meanwhile, his mom finds him, verse 48, and when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Verse 49, and he said to him, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? But they did not understand, verse 50, the statement which he had made to them. So recall it's 12 years later. Mary and Joseph have pieces of revelation, the angelic revelation that was given to them. They have a certain understanding about Emmanuel and what's going on here and the virgin conception and some ties to prophecy and whatnot. But you're still reading your Hebrew Bible because it's coming to fruition. You're going, what's happening? Right? Even as Jesus teaches his disciples, you know, cognitively the wheels are going and you're kind of like, hey, what's going on here? What's interesting here in the text, if you haven't stopped to pause and consider the power of this, these are Jesus' first recorded words. This is the first time, by revelation of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, are we told what Jesus' first words in Scripture are. And they are loud and clear that he knows who he is and what his mission was. Right? If it was like, Obi, what are you doing? We were looking for you in the British Museum. I was in my father's house. You're like, get out of here. Give me that tablet. You're grounded. You know, what do you mean your father's house? They're in the temple. Right? Yahweh, Hashem, the name that indwells the temple. He says, that's my father. Recall in John 5, when Jesus speaks of God the Father as his father, how they accuse him of heresy, because in the text of John 5, it says he was making himself equal to God, calling God his father. This is a claim of divinity. He knows the temple's role in the redemption of Israel, and that years later he would come and cleanse that temple, that he would ultimately become the Passover lamb of Israel, that they were in Jerusalem celebrating right then. They were celebrating Passover, and he himself would become the Passover lamb of sacrifice. He's well aware of this. Along with showing his divinity, we also see in the text of Scripture his humanity. We see his life and limitations. Moving down your outline, looking at his life and limitations, and moving down the text in Luke 2, look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The eternal Son was never in subjection to no other person. Say, well, wasn't he subjected to the Father? No, he and the Father are one, and the Spirit are one, and God has one will and one nature. They're in full union. To be subject, you have to have a different will. They have one shared will. The Father and the Son aren't eternally, oh, I don't want to do that, Dad. They have one will. He's never been in subjection before, and now we read in his humanity he's subjected. He's the giver of life. He's the savior of his own parents, and yet he subjects himself to them. Further in the text, look at verse 52. He increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. So we see in the text, we see his life and limitations. We see him growing in wisdom. We see instances in the gospel accounts where he gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he gets tired. We see him filled with sorrow. We see him ask questions where he's unaware, specifically with regard to his return. They say, when are you going to come? And he goes, I don't know. We see him being surprised and astonished in instances inside of the Bible where he's, he's amazed at his hometown's lack of faith. He's astonished at the centurion's faith. In his humanity, he can be surprised. You can say, Jesus, guess which hand? You know, he's like, mm, in his humanity. But in his deity, he fully knows in which hand you're hiding the card. In his humanity, he's fully innocent. Even more than being innocent, he is impeccable. I'll say more about being impeccable in a moment. I think we understand what the word innocent means. You have these passages on your outline that describe his innocence. 
Even those who don't believe in him, like Pontius Pilate, say, I have no basis or charge against this man. The Scriptures describe Christ as knowing no sin. There is no sin in Christ. Beyond his sinlessness, he is also impeccable. What does that mean, impeccability? It's a theological concept that contends with Scripture that Jesus is fully divine and hence he is incapable of sinning. James 1.13 says, and I quote, God cannot be tempted. James 1.13, God cannot be tempted. And since Christ is God the Son, he then cannot be tempted. He is impeccable. Uh, defining impeccability here, we turn to theologian Shedd. The doctrine of impeccability states that Christ was not only sinless, he was unable to sin. And as the incarnate Son of God, Christ faced real temptations. But these temptations did not arise in Christ due to sinful desires. Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, he was unable to be overcome by it. This is not to say that the devil and the kingdom of darkness uh, could not attempt to tempt him. Oh, they attempted to tempt him, to be sure. But demons are fools for doing so. It might have worked on our father and mother Adam. Hey, eat from the tree. That temptation might have worked on the first Adam, but not on the second Adam. While Jesus experienced human emotions and temptations and physical limitations, his divine nature ensured that he remained sinless throughout his earthly life. Uh, let's move from Luke chapter 2 over to chapter 22. We consider the sufferings in the mission of Jesus. As you move from chapter 2 to 22, there's a lot of sufferings in his early life ministry. We see in Jewish prophecy, it was foretold that he would suffer. In the Gospels, we read of his suffering, not just on the cross, but throughout his life. He would have fevers as a baby, colic, constipation, skin, knees, and whatnot. He goes through all of it. As a boy moving into adulthood, he would have faced emotional suffering. All grown up in the Gospels, we see emotional suffering, friends abandoning him, not listening to him, complaining, eventually denying him. This is all a part of what we call the doctrine of humiliation. God the Son in His pre-incarnate glory that He had with the Father and the Spirit before the foundations of the world humiliates Himself. He condescends to become a man in the incarnation and to live an earthly life of, of suffering. He's poor. He's homeless in many instances. And then He comes to the cross of Calvary and He's buried in a tomb as a dead man. God the Son humiliates Himself and does this. And it's through that death, moving on your outline, where we have this vicarious term on your outline, the vicarious death of Jesus. It's through his death that we will receive life. He humiliates himself out of love for his people. I ask you to turn to Luke 22. This is the Last Supper where Jesus is with the disciples just before he's about to face death. Look at verse 19. They had taken the bread, they had given thanks. It's Passover time again. So we move from Luke 2 Passover to Luke 22 Passover. He breaks it and he gives it to him, saying, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And like Mary and Joseph, who kind of don't understand what's going on, they don't understand what's going on. In the same way, verse 20, he takes the cup after they had eaten, and he said, This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table, speaking of Judas. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to the one to whom he is being betrayed. This is my body. This is my blood foreshadowing his death, where he's going to impale his body on the cross. His blood is literally going to flow out of his body unto death. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why have you humiliated yourself in such a public display? Why are you doing this? He says, for you. I'm doing this for you. 
I'm doing this to be your Passover lamb, to atone for you. Atonement is a, a, a concept in the Bible that is used to describe the brokenness of humanity with God. Throughout the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, you have these, these symbols of atonement that all get picked up in Jesus where he's our redeemer. He atones for us. The Bible has numerous metaphors of this, and you see them on the slide in front of you. There's a metaphor of sacrifice, the metaphor of, of estranged personal relationships, uh, the metaphor of anger at wrongdoing, language of the marketplace, of being sold into slavery, language of the law court, of being guilty, language of the battlefield, of being enemies with God. And we have these biblical terms that are used of blood and lamb and sacrifice and reconciliation and propitiation, satisfying the anger that is, is justly due at us because we've rebelled against God. And, and language about ransom, of being rescued from the market and, and being justified, being declared honest in his courtroom and having victory and deliverance from that battlefield as he takes prisoners of war, enemies, and he brings them to himself. Look at what he has done. For you, right? For you, look at what he has done. He's a sacrifice for you. He reconciles you. He propitiates for you. He redeems you, ransoms you, justifies you, delivers you. This is his offer. This isn't, uh, you know, a technical graph of terms. This is an invitation. We are guilty. Don't you want to be forgiven? Come to him. We are alienated from Him. Don't you want to be bought back into intimate fellowship with Him? Come to Him. We are under His holy wrath. Don't, don't you want that to be satisfied? Come to Him. We're enslaved to sin. Don't you want to be set free? <laughs> Come to Him. We're condemned. Don't you want to be pardoned and counted as righteous? Come to Him. We are facing dreadful enemies in this fallen world. Don't you want to be delivered and have triumph in Christ? Come to Him. I plead with you, I beg of you, come to Him. Cry out to Him for forgiveness of your sins. He is mighty to save. He will forgive you. And the proof is in the pudding in His resurrection. The, victorious, the vicarious death moves to the victorious resurrection. We talked about, and I showed you the graph depicting His humiliation, but on the other side of this, we see His exaltation. He rises from the dead. He ascends. He sits at the right hand of God. He is coming again. The humiliated one is exalted. Philippians chapter 2 has a beautiful section on this. And you say, what is, what is the Christ child? What is, what is he up to today? Uh, it's important not just to leave Christmas past at Christmas past, but to connect it to Christmas future and Christmas present. Presently, Jesus is on the throne. Uh, this is what you have on your outline here, the minus triplex of, of Christ. In the past, we see him as the prophet. In the present, we see him as priest. In the future, we see him as king. He is alive and well in a human body at the right hand of the Father, reigning as prophet, priest, and king over his people. And currently, he is head over his church. He reigns over his church in the present moment, which we read about all throughout the New Testament. And we read as well of his coming return. I hope you still have Luke 22 open. We read of him saying, I'm going to die for you, my body for you, my blood for you. Look what comes just before that, verse 14. Luke 22, 14. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when you have taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, 
I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now or until the kingdom of God comes first. He ties Christmas past to Christmas future. When the king will return in this, in this future reign, when he will return in this future reign, and he will bring the kingdom of God to his people. He says, I'm not going to eat of this until this happens. And this happened, Christmas, so that he can pave the way for Christmas future. And at Christmas future, there will be a people to gather unto himself. Recall that we began in Titus 2. And in Titus 2, you have a connection of Christmas past to Christmas future and Christmas in the present. For until the grace of God appeared, Titus 2.11, bringing salvation to all men. And he goes on to say, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. The redemption, the coming of the incarnation, Christmas past, the redemption he ties to his appearing in the future. All of this to say the concluding point is for us, don't just leave Christmas back in the first century. The hope that the wise men had, the hope that the shepherds had, the hope that the ancients had of the coming one is still our hope. The one who has come is coming again. Amen? Let's do it again. The one who has come is coming again. Amen? Amen. And it was necessary for God the Son to become incarnate. It was necessary for a God-man to save us from our sins. The necessity of Christ's humanity is clear. In order to stand in our place, he has to be what we are. He has to be a man in order to stand in the place of men. Gregory Nanzianzen's dictum uh, in the 300s, he said, the unassumed is unhealed. To heal us, he had to become what we are. He is what we are. He's homoousia, homo, the same. He's the same stuff that we are. At, at Christmas, Christmas has passed, and now everything's on sale, right? You go to the store, everything's on sale. I was at the store the other day. I'm looking at all the gingerbread houses, you know, and uh, there was one. It has gingerbread men in the kit. You got gingerbread men in the gingerbread house. And I don't know, it just, for a second it seemed kind of weird. I'd never thought about it really before, but I'm like, the gingerbread men are made out of the same stuff that they live in. The gingerbread house is the gingerbread men. It's the same stuff. It's homoousia. You're made of the same stuff that you live in. And so too, Christ, he's become the same stuff that we are. Full humanity, body, soul, spirit, all of it. He's become everything that we are. Like, like, like gingerbread men, that's what you live in. He came and lived among us. He dwelt among us. The necessity of his deity is also clear, as we've seen in this study. As a human, he becomes what we are so that he can die in our place. But if he's not God, then he doesn't have the prerogative to forgive. And as God, we see that he brings perfect revelation to us. He, he brings revelation to us in the flesh. And in the flesh, he provides an example for us. You want someone to look up to? Look, look unto him. He's the perfect example of us in every way of what we ought to be because he obeys the law of God. And that's how he saves us. We broke the law, he obeys the law. He goes, you want my grade or yours? I mean, you know, in school, you've probably failed a test here or there, right? Imagine if your teacher was like, I'll give you someone else's perfect score. Sign me up for that. Don't tell my parents. <laughs> you know, I want that. You get his perfect score. And in his humanity, we see him as a faithful high priest who intercedes for us, who we can run to. When you run to him in prayer, you're not just talking to God, you're talking to the God-man. One who skinned his knee. One who had a stepdad. One who had crazy cousins and messed up uncles and drama around the holidays and all of that. You're talking to someone who knows. You're talking to someone who can sympathize with us in every way. 
Finally, you're talking to the one who is the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. In a moment, we're going to sing and give thanks to him for being that propitiatory sacrifice. What we just read in Luke of him passing on this meal to the disciples, we're going to partake in. The tables have bread and cups of juice on them. And in that, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate God the Son becoming a man. And hence, these symbols of his body and blood. The eternal God is immaterial. He has no body or blood. But God the Son took on full humanity. And so we have these symbols before us. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, the one who lays down his life. That's exactly what he did. He laid down his life for us. You know, one of the greatest joys in this world is the joy of being loved by another person for who we are in spite of our faults. No doubt you've been in relationships where you weren't loved for who you are in spite of your faults. Uh, A bad marriage is a lonely place. Uh, Being raised in a home with horrible parents is a lonely place. Being in a dysfunctional, dark family, being rejected by friends you love, these are lonely places where people will say, no, I'm done with you because of this. The message of the gospel is a message of love where God receives us as sinners and says, even though, even though you've done this, right? Even though you are this, I will, I will love you. I submit to you that this is the greatest joy one can experience in this life. It is the joy of being known and loved by God in spite of our sin. Being accepted by His grace, right? For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That He has saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And now He stands, He reigns in the heavens forever as a man, will return as the God-man, and has given us communion to celebrate until He returns. So let us come to the table. Let us celebrate the one who has come and who is coming again in his parousia. Let's pray and let's sing and let's have communion. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church, Lord, where we are able to uh, go deep into your word. Thank you for those who have gathered here today. Lord, and with the new year upon us, I pray that we would have a renewed vigor for the importance of Sunday morning a renewed vigor for the gathering of the saints, a renewed passion for the gift that we have in being together, to join our voices together in song and to come to the table. You told us as often as we gather to partake in the table, and every week we get to do this together. What a highlight of our week to have communion. Bless this meal before us. May the symbols of the table um, remind us of all that you have done for us. And Lord, may you press into us the very things that we are learning, the information that we have gained today. May it not be mere information, but genuine transformation. Draw us in repentance and faith as we come to the table. And we're reminded of our sins before your law and the justification that you have provided for your people and the cost that it was, the humiliation of your son who came for us. We offer these songs of worship, this time of communion, and our offerings this Sunday unto you. In Christ's name, amen.